Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. In this episode, we speak with Michelle Scarborough, the managing partner of BDC Strategic Investments Fund and the Women in Technology Venture Fund. She manages over 200 million in capital and talks with us about her funds and the mandates of the BDC. One thing to make clear is that in by no way is the BDC Venture Fund some form of grants or otherwise easy money. Michelle makes it very clear that although they aim to increase economic development and diversity in Canada, they're return driven. In other words, when you're pitching them, they're investing for the long haul and the terms and requirements they have are what you should expect from any other credible venture capital firm. In addition to hearing about the mandates of the funds, we get into the human side of venture investing. With her position and her experience, difficult conversations are part of the role. So we talked about what those conversations are like and how you could avoid them. We also talk about the subjective perceptions of being a VC. Like what kind of entrepreneur does she look for? Again, it's subjective, but her perspectives are telling about what could help you land a great investor. So I'll leave it to you to enjoy this episode. And if you find it valuable, please share it with your networks because we'll all have to raise capital at some point. On the line, I have Michelle Scarborough, who's managing partner of strategic investments, as well as women in technology fund at the BDC. Michelle, thanks so much for making the time. Thanks for having me. This has been a long time coming. So um, I'm glad we finally connected. And I know you have a lot of stories to share, but perhaps the best place for us to start is to get a summary of yourself and, and your main focuses with the BDC and what you're doing with the venture funds there. Sure. Again, thanks for having me, Corey. It's great to chat with you again. It has been a long time coming. So I guess by way of background, I have been an entrepreneur and operator of both non-technology and technology companies over the course of my career and have been a venture investor probably for about 15 of those years. So I'm kind of dating myself there. At the BDC, I run two funds. I run the Strategic Investments Fund, which is a seed fund for the bank. And then I also lead the Women in Technology Venture Fund, which is right now the largest fund in the world dedicated to investing in women-led technology enterprises. It is venture, and so we're, um, both of those funds are return-focused. But really, our job is to invest in companies from seed to scale. In the case of the Women in Technology Fund, to invest in companies where there's a woman in the leadership team, a minimum of one, either as a founder, co-founder, CEO, or in a significant position in the C-suite. And to be with those companies as they grow their opportunities and those businesses, those technology businesses into a global market, and really to take advantage of opportunities and disruption that are currently existing today. So we're return oriented, but really looking at you know outsized opportunities as any venture fund would broadly across many opportunity sets in many sectors. 
So you make a couple of points there. I think paths that we should go down. One is that perhaps a misconception about the BDC and how they work is that by no means is this a charity fund or a community support fund. This is a bona fide venture fund. So I'd like to get into that because there's parameters of how you operate. And what I want to drive into is what should the entrepreneurs know when they knock on your door? And you make that point, you're return-oriented. The primary objective is returns, or one of the primary. And then the second piece there is the Women in Technology Fund, and it being the largest fund of its kind in the world about that. So I want to touch on both those. Maybe we'll start with, can you lay the groundwork for the BDC and the funds you're operating and what that means? Mm -hmm. So I think it's worth stepping back and kind of taking a look at what BDC does. BDC is the bank you know, exclusively devoted to entrepreneurs. We are a crown corporation and we operate really across three lines of business. We have a financing business, we have an advisory services business, and then we have an investment business, which is the area that I fall under. And that, that investment segment of BDC is called BDC Capital. And within BDC Capital, we are one of the most active investors in Canada. Our target market is the Canadian entrepreneur. And in the case of BDC Capital, the Canadian technology entrepreneur, the entrepreneur that wants to build a a venture-backed business. And we have a variety of venture funds and products underneath that banner. We have direct investments, which is where I fall. We have a big fund-to-funds program also, which invests in fund managers across Canada. And then we have what's called um, sort of growth and transition capital, which is really late-stage capital, including mezzanine financing and some private equity to really help companies at the later stages of their business development to really, really scale. So if we take a step back and we focus on where I play and the parameters around those funds, BDC Capital and the funds that I run are return-oriented. We've modeled them specifically like you would see any other private fund in the marketplace. They have a 10-year lifespan with a five-year investment period. The big difference, obviously, being that we're not out in the market raising money. The dollars that we have that are deployed are from the balance sheet of the bank. But the focus is to identify great outsized opportunities in technology companies. Again, we are agnostic of sector. And then to look at those companies to see whether they have, you know, things like an unfair competitive advantage in the marketplace. Are they disrupting a market? Are they creating a technology that somebody actually wants to buy? and continue to buy over time and grow a huge market segment. So we really work at looking for those outsized opportunities where we can be a strategic investor at the beginning, at the very early stages of the life cycle of that company, and then grow with the entrepreneur and the management team as that company scales into a global marketplace, ultimately looking at what an exit will look like as we reach the end of that 10-year life cycle period of our fund. So in essence, you're no different than a typical VC. I mean, you operate within the same confines, the same model, the same drive for seeing outsized returns in taking the bets on these companies. And what are the common misconceptions that people are coming to your venture fund with that need to be dispelled? Well, I think, you know, you sort of hit the nail on the head when you talked about sort of granting and things like that. You know, the unique thing about the bank is that it does have a developmental mandate. And so that means that in the case of the Women in Technology Fund, you know, that fund was set up because we saw a gap in the market 
where women were underserved in the development of their leadership and their ability to raise capital to build venture-backed businesses. So even though we're return-oriented, and it's a bit of a push and a pull, but even though we're return-oriented, we still look at the marketplace and look for where there may be gaps in the market where we can fill an important role. And that certainly was the impetus for the setup for the start of the Women in Technology Fund. Now, again, that being said, we are looking at a return profile for any investment that we make into a company, but we are looking for ways in which we can accelerate the path of those businesses into the markets that they're serving. The other thing that I'd touch on here with respect to your question is the fact that even though we're return oriented, we are a patient investor. So the reason for $200 million Women in Technology Fund is because we want to be able to invest early and we want to be able to stay through the course of multiple investment cycles as the company grows and be able to double down on an investment either by leading at a next round or at subsequent rounds if we deem it's appropriate to do so within the confines of the company. So what that means is we may invest at the seed stage of a business, see the traction of that business grow and decide that we're going to lead a series A or we're going to lead a series B, which we have done with a number of the companies in the current portfolio. And then continue to drive value, not just by capital, but by also leveraging the network, both within BDC among the you know 2,200 employees and, and 57,000 customers, but also outside through our networks with the venture funds that we invest in through our fund of funds team or into the global marketplace through our own connections, my connections, my team's connections and other connections that we have in the market in order to accelerate the growth of those companies as they continue to evolve and develop. And that's critically important because as we know, you know, you've been an entrepreneur before you understand how this works Capital alone doesn't cut it if you can't actually accelerate the business. If you can't continue to grow revenues and continue to meet market need and grow market need or pivot to capture a new market opportunity that maybe you didn't see before, if you can't do that with the help of your investors, you probably have the wrong investors. So we try to bring not just our capital to the table, but we also really try to leverage our networks we really try to leverage the additional resources that we have available to us within the bank. And in addition to that, we leverage the bank itself in some cases where we think there might be an opportunity for us to be, you know, a customer, a pilot or a customer that might look at the company for the sake of, in the case of FinTech, as an example, mm-hmm. look at the company as a uh, potential opportunity for us to use so that, you know, as the economy is evolving, BDC is also evolving and the bank is also evolving its ability to stay ahead of the curve, so to speak. So what I'm hearing is you play well with others. We play very well with others. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there's a few ways (laughs) you try. Yeah. So in that, I would imagine that, can we get into the specifics of leading an investment? And, And for the most part, I'm sure uh, the listeners know that, you know, a lead investor is the one who's writing the largest check and they're going to help bring the financing together and really be the, the sponsor, if you will, of that deal to mm-hmm. their network. But can we take it a level further? What does it mean to lead? When you go and say, you know what, we're going to lead this deal, what decisions have you made and what's the path forward for you then? And how can the entrepreneur support you in doing that? 
So I think the first decision that is made or the key decision that's made, maybe is the best way to frame that, is we have now conviction, full conviction, that this is a team, a company, and an opportunity that we want to back. We understand the market. We have done enough homework to be very confident in that conviction that this is an opportunity that is going to be big. Let's put it that way. So that's kind of the first order. In some cases, it's because we understand the marketplace very, very well. We focus on the team that have very deep domain expertise in fintech, and we understand that very well. So if we make the conviction that we're going to to lead the investment, we've probably already passed a number of hurdles with respect to, you know, outsized market opportunity team we can work with, technology that has been de-risked. And now we're looking at, you know, how do we scale and how do we grow this business for real? Those are usually the things that kind of get us over the hurdle with respect to a lead. Where the entrepreneur can help with respect to pulling the investment, the syndication together is in who else have they talked to in the market? What other venture investors? We've got a pretty good network, but what other venture investors have they spoken with that makes sense for them? Because you know, keep in mind, this is a two-way street, right? So the entrepreneur needs to be lockstep with the lead investor. We need to be aligned, but we also need to understand what the other syndication folks need to look like. Who are the other co-investment partners that are best suited to come to the table at this particular moment in time for this company to grow? What capital do they bring and what skills do they bring? What domain expertise do they bring and what networks do they bring? So the entrepreneur in working with the lead investor really is about making sure that we're marching down that road together to pull the syndication together. And the other piece of that is being aligned in terms of value. You know, you and I've talked about this before, but what we are seeing right now is a fairly frothy market, or we have been for the last few years seen a fairly frothy market in terms of valuations. And those valuations, the entrepreneur needs to understand, they actually have to grow into that valuation. So the dollars that go into the company allow the company to grow revenues and to scale the business such that they actually you know, get to the valuation number that's been ascribed to them in the round. Setting a valuation expectation that's too high puts a lot of extra pressure on the company in order to be successful. Frankly, if you don't meet that valuation, can result in a down round. So when we're leading a round and we're ultimately pricing the round, we're always having the discussion with the entrepreneur, the management team about what is an expectation on value that can be realized such that you don't put yourself in a difficult position at your next round of financing or or potentially at an exit opportunity because you have outvalued yourself too early and not been able to meet your targets that would help you to make that value realizable. That's such a powerful point. And I think a lot of people, especially with the the financial media who touts big valuations, they just, they glom onto a number, not realizing that's a forward looking number in the sense of you still have to execute to really put that value there and to see that you're not going to fall apart in the future when, when you haven't hit your growth expectations. And that money coming in is not representative of, what's the best way to put it? It's 
there's a lot of growing still to be done. And just thinking that by having right. this number attached to you, it means you're something. It's almost, there's way too much emphasis put on it when the growth still hasn't occurred. Yeah, especially when you're talking about a Series A where, you know, the company might only be doing a couple million dollars in revenues. I'm kind of talking Canadian terms and not US terms, but that's a kind of a big, it's a big thing. And I think the other thing that we see, just to kind of close the loop on that from, um, you know, what we're kind of seeing in the marketplace right now is that there's a lot of emphasis being placed on, you know, sort of, I raised a big Series A or I raised a big Series B and therefore, you know, we're awesome. Well, that's great that you were able to raise that amount of money, but your focus as an entrepreneur and as the senior leadership team of that company should first and foremost be on, okay, so now how do we scale this business? How do we generate the revenues? How do we get our customers to love us so much that they want to stay with us forever? And that is, you know, growth of your sales and growth of your revenues are the ultimate measure of success in any of these companies. And the valuations and the dollars that you raise are a means to allow you the opportunity to go fast and get there. And I think that's a nuance that, you know, sometimes we forget. Yeah, it's, this reminds me of the interview I did with Charles Plant, who is the founder of the Narwhal Project. And he's been putting together what he calls the, the algorithm for growth or you know, billion dollar unicorns or in Canadian terms, narwhals. And one of the things he made a clear point of was when raising that money, that money should be so heavily allocated towards sales and marketing that you're able to achieve the top line numbers where you can continue to be valued on growth and then achieve the, the valuation you need in the next round that doesn't dilute you out or put you into a down round position. And in essence, you know, you can incur as much loss as, as you're able to handle with the money you have, but those losses should be coming from sales and marketing as you're gaining more and more customers adding to the top line. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in a world of hurt. Yeah, I think it depends on the business. Uh, okay, fair for, enough. Yeah, Certainly enough. for enterprise, I think that would be true. I think if you're talking about, you know, an energy technology business or a clean tech business or you know, a B2C business that, pr that probably, that mechanism probably adjusts itself. That is, yeah, I should have put some caveats there. But with that, then, you know, I guess to get finer onto the point of that, how do industries differ? And especially you being agnostic, do you view industries different when investing? So we do and we don't. We look at the business fundamentals, obviously. Um, we look at the, you know, the team is a really big one for us. Is this a coachable team? Does this team have deep domain expertise? Do they have the tenacity to be able to build a big business? Or are they surrounding themselves with others that can help them do that? I think particularly with the senior management team when we're looking at them from their sort of ability to scale. We also, though, when we see a fair number of, you know, digital health companies, so sort of health IT, things sort of around the edge of personalized medicine and some of that stuff, we typically will look to some of the other venture investors for help. If we are looking at a company that, you know, has a great woman in the C-suite as CEO or maybe the CTO or CMO, and we'll typically look at our, call them our other venture investors in the marketplace 
for guidance on where they would see the company typically as a potential for due for assisting us with due diligence or even possibly participating in the round or leading the round such that you know they can kind of validate some of the things that are specific to the sector that we are unfamiliar with in the case of clean tech and you know energy technology those are spaces where i've invested very heavily in prior funds and so those are a bit a little bit easier but generally we look at business fundamentals as a starting point and then grab our network for domain expertise validation we also use the nrc a lot the nrc folks in canada have unbelievable domain experts sitting in their shops that can look at ip portfolios and make good strong recommendations on you know whether the intellectual property will stand the test of time in a global marketplace or not so oh, interesting sorry just, who's, the, who's the nrc the national research council oh wow okay mm-hmm. so they're an untapped resource Oh, nice. Um, There's always gold that comes out of these podcasts, and I think that might <laughs> Well, there you go. So the NRC is an untapped, so National Research Council of Canada, untapped resource, and a, just a wealth of expertise. These are all, you know, incredible research facilities that we have in Canada doing fundamental and applied research. And the experts that are within those institutions are outstanding. And so being able to tap into those folks and get experience and an understanding of something very specific in a technology application is really invaluable when you're making a decision to make an investment. Mm, interesting. Something that I think is important to get into, and I would imagine you've probably seen the, you know, all aspects of this, is when we step back to valuations and, and down rounds, a lot of that can start, well, it revolves or is part of the term sheets and the deal terms you put in place with your companies. What experiences have you had where it's either gone incredibly well, like things worked out and you wish all your deals you know, worked on that path, or where did it just, you know, things go terribly bad and it comes back to term sheets or structure that just fell apart? Well, I think typically at term sheet, you know, once you get through term sheet and you've agreed to the terms, it typically goes smoothly from there. When the wheels fall off the bus, it's usually when, you know, you're well at your the round is closed and you're well into the into the operations of the business and you're maybe looking at a bridge to the next round. You know, the company mm. needs a bit more money. And then you have to go back and revisit the terms and the term sheet and also the shareholders agreement and determine, okay, so, you know, do we do a bridge? Is it an insider bridge? Is it, uh, do we just go raise another round of financing? Company only needs $2 million, not $10 million. So what do we do? That's typically sort of when you're kind of revisiting things and looking at what you put in the prior term sheet versus what you would do in a term sheet predicated on a on a bridge round. And, you know, notification to the shareholders and, and all of those kinds of things. But it typically doesn't, if everybody is aligned at the board level and you've been open and you've had an open discussion about what the needs are and everybody's in agreement, you typically don't have too much trouble. Where, again, where you get into deeper, heavier discussions is when the company needs more money, but you're not getting to the right, like, your burn is high, 
you need more money, but you're not getting to the revenues that you need to get to. And so then the question becomes why? And what do you do to mitigate risk at that point while still providing fuel to the company to continue to allow the team to try to execute? It's those kinds of situations more so that are where you're having more kind of not difficult conversations, but you're like, okay, so how do we solve this? You know, we've got burn is high. We're trying to generate revenues in the market. Maybe it's taking way longer. You know, it's, it was supposed to be a six-month closed cycle from um, these enterprise software booked to actualize revenues. And now it's, you know, 12 months because we're selling into a specific segment of the market that just takes longer. And those are the kinds of discussions that start to get play into what you've put in that term sheet and the value that you've assigned and then ultimately how, how you're playing it forward to get it, get the company through potentially a hump. So you've had to have some hard conversations then, because I can't imagine everybody you've worked with and, and invested in has been cordial, forthcoming, and malleable to your coaching and to your... <laughs> so, I mean, you've probably had some very difficult relationships, whether they were winners or not, they were still difficult, but you probably had some really great ones. Can you contrast any of those and share experiences where like there was kind of the things that were a win for you and then others which weren't? Mm-hmm. Well, it's pretty simple because it all comes down to people, right? We're in a people business mm-hmm. and it all comes down to people, you know, and you're right. You have difficult conversations pretty much all the time. And I think what's lost on folks and, you know, maybe I'm making a generalized statement and I shouldn't do that, but what sometimes gets lost is the fact that we're all people and we're all stewarding other people's money trying to achieve an objective. And the objective is to build a big business. So we're aligned in terms of, you know, we want to build a big company, but we're, we're all stewarding other people's money. And there's a, there's a strong obligation to that and to make sure that we all kind of do it the right way and are, respect, and are mutually respectful of all of that stuff, both ways. I just wanted to add there, I think that that's, you know, that is a really important thing that is, I don't know if entrepreneurs fully respect, and again, okay, there's a general statement, but if entrepreneurs fully expect or fully realize the position that VCs are in when they're stewarding other people's money as a fiduciary of that other money and, and what that means for them, I mean, they're in business too, and they have, you have just about, or, you know, as much on the line as they do when it comes to operating your business properly. And I think maybe that falls short for some. They don't fully appreciate the difficult position you're in as an investor. Yeah. You know, I think just, you know, we're all entrepreneurs, right? So even though we're venture investors, we're still entrepreneurs pretty much at heart. But it does go back to the alignment and having those complicated discussions or those challenging discussions about, you know, where to next. The best conversations that I've had even though there've been difficult ones have been with people that a understand what we just talked about b kind of park their egos and are more this is a team effort so how do we solve this and c the issues are raised early you know there's going to be a challenge in 6 months with cash flow because xyz is happening okay we're six months out. Let's have the conversation now, not a week before we're at a cash and we can't make payroll. Right. So, so and how often does that happen for you? Oh, it's happened a few times. <laughs> <laughs> we're at a cash in, uh, in two weeks and you know, can you give us more money? 
that comes up. Not infrequently that comes up, particularly when they're at the seed stage. But, you know, the best experiences in having those hard conversations are when, like I said, when there's that kind of commonality and there's an openness and a transparency to kind of deal with things well in advance or to ask questions. And I mean, I don't purport to have all the answers either. You know, you learn something new in venture capital every single day. You meet different people with different perspectives every single day. And that's what makes this job so interesting and enjoyable and fun and challenging all at the same time. But those conversations are best had and best solved. Those challenges are best solved when there is that sort of open sort of conversation early on so that, you know, the board can get sorted on how we're going to solve for it. We can leverage the network to solve for it if we need to. And we can kind of, we've got some time to figure it out. Where I've had challenging conversations that have gone not as well are when, you know, like I just said, when we find out that they're going to be out of cash in, you know, a week and company hasn't bothered to tell anybody the senior management team has been focused elsewhere and not on cash flow or they don't understand management hasn't understood that the well you know you can't just go back to the investors every week and say you know i need more money i need more money i need more money it's not a money tree it's not yeah it's not a well but we also have a process and because we have a fiduciary responsibility every time that we invest in a company whether it's a new investment or a follow-on investment we're always reassessing. We're always saying, okay, so if we add another million dollars right now and the company's out of money in a week, what's our risk? What happens? Are we going to be out of money again in four weeks because this million dollars is going to go to zero? What happens? So it starts to beg other questions about how are we managing the business? How are we tracking sales? Are we burning too much cash in lieu of maybe doing something different. And if you have to make decisions, A, in the absence of good information because you know it's come up at the last minute, or B, because you're just not getting the full picture, two things happen. One, you reevaluate whether or not you wanna to continue to invest in the company, and two, you reevaluate whether you wanna invest in the people in the company. Hmm. And that's an unfortunate thing, but that's, what happens as those things kind of um, evolve. So we try to mitigate that risk up front versus having to get into those not so nice ones. Not so yeah, nice ones. it feels, and, and I can sense that, you know, right off the bat there, when these things happen, there's probably such a significant erosion of trust that mm-hmm. gives you, it puts you in such a hard point to, you know, how do you rebuild that, which is probably one of the the most valuable currencies in the equation here are valuable tools in the, in the equation. And it actually reminds me of, I had Cody Sanchez on, who's a cannabis VC out of the US. A great episode with her. And one of the things she said is the companies that over-communicate are the best, or the best companies over-communicate. And, and I think that's in line with what you're saying here. If they're communicating to you properly, you can really avoid some of these just unneeded situations. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that either. Over-communication is totally fine. Yeah, interesting. I think most people would shy away from it, but you know, even just a regular form of email to just keep people updated, good or bad, is, would go way further than coming with difficult news. 
You've got it. And we, I mean, you know, many of our companies that are sort of in that growth trajectory, sort of series A, series B and beyond and really growing, we have, you know, quarterly board meetings, but we also have a monthly call with the management team and the board and observers just to get a bit of a touch point. It's just a quick hour, but it's just a touch point on where things are going and, you know, any asks that the management team has for the board and observers they put into that monthly call and the, the quarterly board meeting, it we're already well prepared for the board meeting. Right. We're, we're in a position where we're discussing strategic issues that are relevant to moving the company forward and being the, you know, the sounding board to the management team and acting in a proper, let's say a proper board governance position versus, you know, we're kind of in the weeds of the business, right. Which is we're supposed to be, Board members are supposed to be nose in, fingers out. So that helps. That makes a lot of sense, actually. So as board members, you actually are up to speed. You're not just getting a board pack and expected to read through everything and have some form of context around it. You actually, it sounds by the monthly meetings, you're well prepared and always up to speed. Yeah. And it just helps kind of keep things moving. And it's also good for the, you know, the leadership team. Because if they have asks of the board or of the observers, you know, usually this is a, the observers and board members are together, they can make those asks in advance of the board meeting so they don't lose any momentum. And they can, you know, the board members then are engaged to participate and provide advice or, you know, whatnot. And I usually try to meet with the companies that I'm on the board of. In addition to those meetings, I, I'm, we're very, very active investors. And so we're, typically speaking with and or meeting with our CEO and leadership team on a monthly basis anyways, particularly as we kind of get closer to financing rounds or if there's big inflection point, the management teams know that, you know, they can call on us at any time and and certainly leverage us and, you know, meet them for breakfast on the weekends or whatever we need to do is the level of support that we'll provide. I mean, that's, yeah, that's very interesting. That comes in and you know, very hands-on, very active means essentially this, the company's getting a partner when they come to you, especially if you're at, you're taking breakfast meetings on a weekend. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the whole point of the exercise too, right? We're, we're kind of, we get married once we put that first dollar in. And so we're in a relationship now. Yeah. Okay. I want to, uh, I don't know if it's actually putting you on the spot or not, but in our, in our earlier discussions, we had a, a laugh about some of these things where you know, these stories where you just can't make the stuff up, you know, things happen. And so do you have any examples of those? I mean, there's got to be in your investing career, there's got to be some really interesting things that have happened. What can you share with us? (laughs) Well, there's many interesting things that I can think of, but probably shouldn't share. (laughs) (laughs) No, don't worry. It's only between us. Yeah. Only between us and thousands of people that are going to listen. No, no, it's all good. I think just some of the, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but just, you know, when you go into me with, we've had this, I've had this situation a couple of times where, you know, you, you're invested in a company, the company seems to be tracking fairly well. Everybody on the board seems to be aligned, you know, everybody's kind of gotten the same information. And then you go and you have a meeting and you know, you sit down with the management team and you kind of get the gut, mm, something's not quite right. 
And this has happened a couple of times, but, uh, and not a BBC, this is when I was doing other investments, but in one case, the CEO lied to us specifically and told us that everything was on track and everything was great and so on, but he was completely conflicted and his compensation wasn't, we found out later that there were some funky clauses in his employment agreement, which we hadn't dove into the details on, which shame on us, we should have but his compensation had some interesting clauses in that were misaligned with really what his role was. And there were also some conflicted, again, we found this out later, conflicted board CEO relationships. You know, the CEO had worked for one of the board members. The board member was invested in the CEO's wife's company. I mean, there was all kinds of fun things that we found out kind of as we started to leverage the gut instinct and dig a bit deeper some side deals that were going on and so on so we ended up having to play the role of a whistleblower this is a privately held company but the same sort of rules applied and put the company on notice and ultimately the senior lender had to come in and take over the business and we had to we basically did a workout we had to fire the ceo and pay him out of his position and do a bunch of things but it was not a fun, like you want to talk about some stuff that's like, once you start to dig into the weeds and we found out all of the intricate details of all of these other relationships that were kind of intertwined in this company at the board level and at the senior management level, it was like, oh my God. Hmm. So not so good. So now, um, you know, the, I was an angel investor in that deal, but obviously we, we look very carefully at the employment agreements of everyone. Yeah. And the board conflicts are declared. And if there are board conflicts that are significant board conflicts, then in our term sheet, we will ask for those things to be rectified before proceeding. Interesting. Proceeding to close. You know, that goes to a good point of due diligence and the due diligence that a sophisticated investor or VC will do. And I think also that for anybody who's building a company, to be expecting that and be prepared for that. We're pretty intensive when we do due diligence on a company, even at the seed stage, which some companies have sort of commented to us that, you know, well, you do a lot of due diligence for a seed stage investment of, you know, 500 or $700,000. But that 500 or $700,000 is equal to all of our potential follow-on dollars that we will put into that company later. So we don't just put them, you know, when we put our 500 or 700,000 in at the beginning of an investment or our first money into that seed round, we're also planning for what our reserves will be on that company as the company continues to grow. And in fact, whether we might take a lead on any subsequent round. So the dollar amounts are significantly more than the first money in. And so when we do diligence, we make sure that we do diligence like we would if we were doing a series A or a series B level investment, which means we go through all the contracts. We look at the technology and the intellectual property and we have a, somebody evaluate the IP specifically if, if there's IP in the business. We look at all of the employment agreements. We spend many, 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 many hours on the cap table, reviewing that, making sure that it's right. And then we spend a lot of time in the company. So we go and sit in the company, we talk to the different teams, 
We spend time with engineering, with sales, with marketing, with customer success, and so on, so that we know those individuals that are leading those teams and we understand all of the details around how they feel about the company, how they feel about the products, how their customers feel about the products, you know, all of the things that are going to make the company sing, and so that we have a relationship with those people as well. And we make sure that we have a deep conversation with customers. Sorry to interrupt you there, but on a scale of one to 10, compared to other VCs or other investors, where do you guys land on the rigors of your due diligence? I think we probably, at the seed stage, I think we probably do more diligence than, than some seed investors. Again, speaking in generality, so some might argue differently. But we, I think, do a fair bit more diligence at seed stage than some might. Again, because we're predicating significantly more dollars at subsequent rounds. But I think generally speaking, you know, if you look across the venture capital landscape, if any of the VCs that I know that are investing, if they're going to commit to making an investment or considering making an investment, they're going to do a significant amount of homework. Hmm. I've got a few comments to say there and some of them that I might just save. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I think it's been definitely instructional what you've shared there. Um, I wanted to touch on something before we jump and that's on the the Women in Technology Fund and, and that focus there. You're a contributor to the Globe and Mail and you do a lot of writing there and something that you wrote sometime in late 2019 there was speaking about the powers of diversity in the workplace and the power of having women in management. And it actually cited a Boston Consulting Group report there. I'm not going to quiz you on any of the stats, but what can you tell us about you know, the importance of this and how this is changing the workplace? And especially like when we're seeing so much more ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues coming into play, and not even issues, but you know, kind of, um, how would you say, initiatives coming into play. What are you seeing and what does this mean for the markets and for entrepreneurs? I think the biggest trend that we see, and remember this Women in Tech Fund was started two years ago. We're at the end of our second year of investment period going to our third. And that was really, you know, sort of pioneering, let's say, at that time. And subsequent to that, a lot of other funds have jumped into the market to sort of address women specifically. But I think the trend is toward, and maybe a trend is the wrong word because I think there's significant staying power here, is maybe a recognition that we live in a diverse world. We have diversity of people, we have diversity of skill, we have diversity of thought, and all of those things combined help make business better because you you meet and or at least hear the needs of other constituents that might be your target market. You get a diverse sort of viewpoint on how you might create something or move something, change a behavior, change a culture and so on that might be different from what you thought. And that's all to the good in terms of building, you know, an economy that's going to have lasting impact. The movement towards ESG, I think, has been evolving over time. I think there's still some discussion and debate around the definitions of ESG and what that means for different groups, different constituency, be it venture or, you know, pension funds and so on. But I think we are moving in that direction. And I think that movement is predicated on the fact that we've got a global movement afoot of, you know, how do we solve the planet 
a problem? How do we solve for the fact that we have, you know, energy problems? How do we solve for the fact that we've got food issues that, you know, consumption is an issue, that we've got too much plastics in the ocean, that water is becoming commoditized and it's still dirty. And how are we going to deal with that? We've got fundamental human problems and planet problems that need to be solved. And I think if you look at where consumers and now investors are moving and where they want to spend their time and their money, it's on things that are going to decrease their footprint. It's on things that are going to provide a simple yet high degree of satisfaction. It is a movement back to sort of the local, particularly when it comes to food, it's sort of, you know, 100 mile stuff, but also an, a movement towards sustainability. And so I think we're going to go there, whether more traditional, whether you like it or not, we're going there. And I think being ahead of that from a diversity perspective is prudent and necessary, let's say, to being able to manage how we invest, what we invest in, and how we build a sustainable economy over time with our target markets at the table, as opposed to pushing something to to constituents expecting that they're going to just lap it up. I see. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think we're in a very different market right now. And I think we're in a market, we're, we're moving towards a market that I think is going to be better for us as humans and for the planet over the long term. And we're just at the beginning of that movement now. I got you there. And, you know, another, I don't know if it's a movement or how best to frame it, but I mean, you've spent your career in finance and and then ventures in building ventures. What advice do you have for young women in the space? Because, you know, you do hear a lot of things that it's not easy or that, you know, even in the world of finance, it's a man's world. That's changing. But what advice do you have for women coming in or women who've had issues in the space? I think the advice that I would give would be that building a business is hard. It's not easy, but it becomes significantly easier if you're open to surrounding yourself with people that will help you and where they may give you advice that you don't like, but they have your best interest in mind. And if you've got an idea and you want to pursue that idea or you want to get into venture capital or private equity or any of these businesses and you want to grow your career, identify the two or three people that you can go to and say, hey, you know, would you mentor me? Would you, you know, go for a beer with me once a month and just, you know, talk about what's happening? Those are the best ways to kind of manage your career and manage your growth or how you want to build your business if if you're an entrepreneur and, and that's what you want to do. Because those people will be invaluable to you later, not just in the moment, but also later as you kind of grow because their networks also can be, you know, very important. So I think, you know, bottom line, getting yourself surrounded by the right people or people that you trust is a first starting point. And I think the second thing is you have to, you know, guys are very confident. When I have guys come in and pitch, they're very this is what we need. This is what we want. We think this is a big market opportunity and, you know, we're going to kill it. And when women come in to pitch, they will often downplay the market opportunity. They will down, they'll sort of be a bit more conservative. Nothing wrong with that. However, 
in both cases, you need to ask for the order. And when we see guys coming in to pitch, they always ask for the order. But women need to do the same thing. Ask for the order. If you need $5 million, you need $5 million. It's okay. No one's going to get mad if you ask for $5 million, but you got to ask for it and not be shy about it. And I think that's the other big piece of advice that I would give. And I know it's a hurdle that I had to get over when I was building companies very early in my career was I just kind of felt like, well, you know, maybe I don't deserve this money. Maybe they, you know, should give me a little less and that way, you know, it'll be okay. I quickly was, you know, I quickly learned and I had very good mentors teach me this. You ask for what you need and substantiate it with facts and you will get it. And once I started doing that, I got what I needed and I was able to then build that next enterprise. And it was the same when I switched into venture. So I think, you know, being bold and asking for it and not, if somebody says no to you, it just means you're one step closer to the next yes. Just keep it. What I'm hearing there though, is, you know, when contrasting men to women in the boardroom coming through, you know, men tend to be more assertive and perhaps (laughs) blindly just decided on where they're going, how they're going and what they need. Whereas women need to come in and to a degree play up to that same assertion level and make the ask and show the confidence instead of being more perhaps reserved in their opinions and their requirements for what they want to execute. Yeah. And I think just no fear, right? Like, you know, you, every person that comes in to see us knows what they want to do. They don't necessarily know how they're going to get there, but they know what they want to do and they have a vision for what that looks like. You know, being confident to just articulate that is half of it. So I have to ask there, when you're getting pitched, are you looking for somebody who's so confident and speaks to the opportunity and answers questions in a way that you look and go, damn it, I don't even know what he's talking about, but I feel good about it. He's just so, you know, he just, he can articulate the hell out of it. Or would you side with somebody who comes in and speaks to the same degree of perhaps conviction, but is open to ask questions and express that, you know, I don't have all the answers. Here's my blind spots but this is still the opportunity I'm going after. I need your help. Where would you side? And perhaps, you know, I bet you could answer right away, but if you were to take a step back and even reflect on past, perhaps even emotional judgments you made, which impacted your ultimate investment, where do you side? It's a really good question. And I think, I hate to say that it lands somewhere in the middle. Damn it, Michelle. I know, but it's dependent <laughs> on the opportunity, right? So if I'm thinking about certain opportunities, like I'm trying to visualize who would have done what you, you know, sort of persona A versus persona B. There have been instances where in some cases we've gone with persona A and in other instances with persona B. So I think it kind of just depends on the, the other opportunity and the, where that opportunity could take us. I think one of the questions that I would ask in both cases is walk us through how you would plan on getting there as a way to further flesh out the confidence level of, you know, am I just going to go for broke 
and guns blazing and ask questions later? Mm. Or am I going to be more measured? Because you're talking about sort of a go for broke response versus a more measured methodical. Yeah. Right. I think that's probably A versus B. That would be how I would sum it up. And and my question is, is where do you or where do VC side? I think, honestly, I think it depends. Like, honestly, sometimes we see entrepreneurs come in and they are that persona A, let's call it. And you just go, yeah, okay. But usually those are serial entrepreneurs, less first timers. Mm. First time entrepreneurs tend to be a bit more, this is where we see the market. I've been in this market for half of my career and I see a huge opportunity to disrupt it. Take insurance, for example, um, which is a, you know, kind of a burgeoning industry. Mm. Insure tech. I've been in insurance for 10 years. This is what they're, you know, they're slow. They need to move. They're not meeting a market need. So I'm stepping out and I'm going to create something that meets a market need. And, and I've already got these three partnerships sewn up and this is what we're going to do. So do you hear the difference? Yeah, I, I can sense that. And I, I see where you're going with that. So not black and white, even though oftentimes we would like it to be. It's many shades of gray. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting. Okay. Well, I'm just looking. Our time went quick here. We're crossing an hour and I... Um, want to be respectful of your time. So perhaps I'll, I'll just leave with the final question of what advice you would have for entrepreneurs pitching you and your teams. And I know that, you know, perhaps this is a summary of our discussion so far, but is there any advice that you'd leave with entrepreneurs raising money? What should they know so they don't make a terrible mistake in doing so? So if they're pitching us, I think the big thing is just to be clear on what you're trying to build and be clear on the ask that you have for us. Keeping in mind that, you know, oftentimes, well, all the time, we never invest alone. We always invest with others. So even if we say no, we will likely open doors to many other potential opportunities for investors to look at the company. So it's not a kind of a one and done. That's typically what we do, regardless of whether we make an investment or not, is we'll refer. And also understand the type of capital that you're looking for. A lot of companies come to us and they think they want equity, but they might not want equity. Like they might be a a technology services business that could do just as well with some debt. Mm. But understanding, you know, the differences between debt and equity and understanding whether or not you want to build a venture-backed business versus just a really good business is important to understand and to kind of have a knowing of before you come in to meet with us. Because hmm. we'll also refer out to, you know, BDC has a big tech lending business. And if the company is best suited for a loan, we may refer the company directly right into the BDC tech lending practice. Hmm. So whenever someone comes to visit us, it's never a, like I said, it's never a one and done. We're always sort of referring up to the marketplace, but understanding that you want to build a venture back business is really important. And also with respect to women in tech, understand what the criteria is that we do, you know, part of our big objective with that fund is to grow women leaders in Canada and help them scale global businesses and be very, very successful as a result of that. So 
we want to make sure that the women in the senior management team have been in the senior management team for some period of time. Our criteria is that if the woman in your management team is not a founder, a co-founder, or the CEO, they have to have been in their position for a minimum of 12 months. And at every turn of investment, so let's just say we invest at seed and then we want to invest at series A, we will revisit that criteria every single time. And if there's no woman in your C-suite, the series A, then we won't be able to lead around. We, we may be able to participate pro rata, but we won't be able to participate in a meaningful way at the next round if you don't have that diversity in your senior leadership team at the time of your next investment. And we're very, we're hard and fast on that. Oh, interesting. Okay. I think that's probably, I hope the listeners listen to the end here because I mean, that could be for anybody approaching you on that fund, that could be a make or break, especially when coming into a next round. So you got um, it. I'll keep that in mind and share it with anybody I speak to. But I think just the last thing, Corey, is that, you know, I think it's important for entrepreneurs to understand that we are investing from seed to scale and we are looking at being a partner for the long term and working alongside the entrepreneur to grow the business. So we're not a short term investor. We want to be a partner for the duration of the company and the life cycle of the company. So I think that's the last kind of important piece that I just want to make sure that was out there. Okay. And that's a big difference. So that's something that it, I think is very important for, for those entrepreneurs to know. So, uh, well, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for, you know, coming on and sharing everything else. It's always enjoyable catching up and chatting with you. And I, I really appreciate the work you're doing with the BDC here. And I'm looking forward to sharing this episode far and wide. Well, I'm super happy to connect with you again. And yeah, we'll do it again. Sounds good. Awesome, Michelle. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.